There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. But what about us? Memories. You're talking about memories. Good, now have a drink. I don't want anything of his or any part of him. Except his life. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you want Played it for her, played it for me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. Waiting for a lady. Someday you'll understand that. Got some news that's gonna take a lot of attention off you and Laura. Stop it, yes, I can't take any more of it! I should be in the You know the story? My story. Maybe because he was drunk. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Well, I'll give her the message. Let there is sleep all over America. Welcome to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, a podcast discussing film noirs of yesterday and neo-noirs of today. Each week, we will deliver a discussion and analysis of classic and neo-noir films, all mixed in with our unintelligible banter. Your hosts for the show, Carly Street and Jason D. Morris. <laughs> Chrome, um, Chrome accepts me. It does. Hey, there's... there's <laughs> There's like no security settings on this whatsoever. So if my computer just sort of blinks out in the middle of this uh, podcast, we'll know why. (laughs) Joe's being hacked by the aliens. (laughs) You never know. Hey, well, you're making shows now about the aliens, apparently. So you're on their radar. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) So you started it, basically. Yeah. No, well, I'm sorry if they, they probe you. <laughs> You're not oh, sorry at all. I did, interview, I did interview Whitley Strieber a few years ago, so I'm probably on their radar too. Who's, who's Whitley Strieber? Oh, he's, the, he's like the poster boy for alien probing. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. He, wrote, um, he wrote the book Communion, uh, which was made into the Christopher Walken movie about the guy who got abducted by aliens and, and probed famously. Yeah. Uh, so he started, you know, he started that whole, that whole thing. <laughs> oh, interesting. Back in the, back in the eighties, I think it was like 85 when he said he was abducted and then he, the book came out in 87 or something like that. Wow. Yeah. I'm just looking it up. Yep. Communion 87. Interesting. He's a, he's a fascinating guy. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's a whole, that's a whole, oh yeah. He was a, he was a horror writer before this happened. Uh, you know, allegedly. <laughs> so uh yeah he's he, he's he's a really super smart guy um but he's 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 kind of out there as you might imagine <laughs> or maybe it happened <laughs> you're well the, then he then he you know but he's written a whole bunch of books since then and and he sort of expanded the story that that you know he went under hypnosis and recovered memories of having been in like an alien uh, secret school when he was growing up in Texas. And I mean, you know, like it, it just grew and grew and grew and grew to, you know, to the, and, and his writing is really intelligent and interesting, but we should talk about the, the UFO, uh, the hidden UFO, uh, messages in, in lost highway, because you know, there, there's a, there's, there's a UFO abduction theory that would, that could tie that whole movie up. I know nothing about this, so you're going to have to definitely. Well, I don't know. I, I just, I just think the <laughs> lighting, it up. the lighting. It, well, yeah, I mean, the lighting when you know, like when Fred is abducted from the jail cell, and and yeah. you know, it just looks like a UFO abduction to me, like how you would shoot that. So yeah, but it's actually funny that you bring that up because Reznor, you know, produced the soundtrack of it, and when he did the um, mm-hmm. the song for uh, um, Natural Born Killers, uh, Burn. 
in that video, it does that same sort of lighting style where it does look like there's a UFO over him with that single like sort of spotlights kind of thing. Um, it's yeah. very similar in terms of style. And that would have been before have Lynch been before, made yeah. Highway, like a yeah, year or two. Like four, no, like four, four years, four. That was 93, 94. Was I think yeah. it's 94 when the album came out, but then, oh no, yeah, 93 was when Natural Born Killers came out. You're right. Yeah. Because he shot it while they were shooting. Burn wasn't on Downward Spiral, was it? It was only on the soundtrack. Uh -uh. Yeah, it was only on Natural Born Killers. For you at home, uh, the gentleman that we're speaking to today is Joseph Madry, who is a veteran book writer. (laughs) Uh, And he uh, is also a documentary filmmaker. Um, He's wrote, I don't know, Joe, what, like 10, 15 books now? Maybe more? 10. I think 10. Okay. Wow. 11 now because we got to the dark side of acting up coming out that you're in. Right. Um, I don't know if you count those, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, sure. Why not? I'll, I'll, yeah. I count them all. <laughs> it's like I wrote a paper when I was three years old and that counts as a book. <laughs> exactly. You should see my resume. <laughs> and he did this amazing documentary um, called Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue. Uh, the evolution of the American horror film. Did I get that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of the, my favorite horror film documentaries that's out there. Um, and I would suggest all of you guys check it out. But uh, before we get into the movie that we're going to talk about today. You left out the fact that he's the nicest person to email on the planet as well. Oh, yes. Well, Joe's, Joe's just a pleasant guy. Not to encourage every random weirdo to send him emails. I apologize if that happens. <laughs> but if you do, I'm going to reply really nicely. So. <laughs> and Carl's like, and his email address is and Joseph. Yeah. Here he is. <laughs> At do not email me.com. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, yeah, he's he's a he's a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, don't want to embarrass him too much. People will see him blush through the audio. Good. Before we get into tonight's movie, uh, we're gonna do our our drink for the night. And Joe, I don't know if you know about this, but we do a, um, a sort of specialty drink every episode, hopefully relating it to the film that we're going to be watching. Um, sometimes we can't do that, but for tonight, I found uh, an awesome drink. Um, called the Rusty Nail. Oh. And obviously I'm going to relate this to the Nine Inch Nails uh, connection to the film that we're doing tonight. Um, And the Rusty Nail is one and a half ounces of scotch whiskey. Nice. Three quarters ounce of... Oh, I don't... Shit, Carly, here we go. Oh, God. Uh, Three quarter... (laughs) Three quarter ounces of drambouille. Of what? Is that something anybody's heard of? Of what? Drambouille, yeah. Jamboree? Okay, I've never heard of this. I don't know what this is. Uh, I will have to look this up. Uh, yeah, so three three and a quarter ounces of Jamboree and a lemon twist. And what you do is you add ice to an old-fashioned glass, chill the glass, pour the scotch and the Jamboree, stir and garnish with a lemon twist and serve. So pretty simple, easy drink. I do have to find out what Jamboree is. What, what, what exactly is this, uh, Joe? Do you know what it is? Have you had it? Uh, I, I haven't had... That particular, I mean, I'm a big fan of old fashioned, so yeah, I would, I would drink that. Uh, in a heart, you know, it's actually 10 a.m. in my world right now. I would probably still drink it, but uh, <laughs> especially the way the world's going these it's days. A, yeah, it's 11 p.m. somewhere, my friends. So you crack it open. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, I think there's a. I re, it's strange. I, this is random, but there, I think there's a, a documentary 
filmmaker who did a George Romero documentary whose name is Rusty Nail. <laughs> oh, no, oh, you know what? Yeah, I think you're right. I recall that. Completely <laughs> random. So he has a drink named after him, apparently. Apparently, yeah. And these are all supposedly uh, uh, prohibition uh, drinks or, or recipes from prohibition era. Yeah. Uh, oh, so it's been a while. So maybe he was named after the drink then. Maybe. His parents were alcoholics. Uh, all right guys at home well um hopefully you guys can enjoy a rusty nail along with us uh as uh we play the trailer for our film tonight which is the 1997 film lost highway We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. At your house, don't you remember? No, I don't. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. That's crazy, man. Call me. I like that. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily the way they happened. Someone broke in and taped us while we slept. Is that you? Are both of them you? We have to get out of here. Why didn't you tell me anything? It's been a pleasure talking to you. Never found out somebody was making out with her. He'll kill us. I told you I was here. What'd you do then? Ask me. Love that trailer. Yeah. Robert Blake laughing gives me chills. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of, is he, I, is he the one that killed his wife or was on trial for killing his wife? Was that him? Uh, yeah, he, he was on, on trial for it. Yeah. Okay. It's funny. I didn't, I, I didn't know. We, when we moved, my wife and I moved to LA, um, and went to this Italian restaurant in Studio City one night. And I remember uh, the waitress came over and she started talking about, because that was, that was uh, his wife. They went to dinner at this, this restaurant in Studio City. And then they went out to their car together. Uh, he went back into the restaurant, left her out there. He went inside to get his gun, which he left behind in the restaurant. Oh, my God. And, and she got killed while he was inside getting his gun and then the, you know, his gun didn't match up to the, the uh, bullet that killed her. Um, but I, I just remember if we went to this restaurant for, for uh, a night out and the waitress 
turned out to be the person who had waited on him that night. And she started telling us this horrific story in the middle of date night. We didn't even, I didn't know anything about it. So we didn't even ask. She just said, you know, you realize you're sitting in the booth. And I'm like, what? Oh, you're in the exact booth? Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh my oh. goodness. Wow. And then, and then I think it was sometime later when I put together like, Oh my God, that was the, the, you know, the pasty faced nightmare man from lost highway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Welcome, welcome to LA. Right? <laughs> I mean, I know him from Beretta. I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, or I, I think I, I never watched Beretta as a kid, but I knew him from uh, uh, In Cold Blood. Okay. Yeah. Also so, good. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I heard that story, I was like, holy crap, really? Um, yeah. I couldn't imagine them. <laughs> yeah. he still does signings. Um, sometimes, uh, around, I don't think he's acted since lost highway, but, um, he'll, he'll still do signings sometimes in the LA, like in Burbank at the Hollywood show, I think, which is basically an autograph show. Uh, every oh, now okay. and then he'll, he'll, he'll turn up, um, which, you know, which uh, is, is sort of newsworthy. <laughs> I mean, it draws a lot of attention when he shows up because he's, you know, known for, something other than being an actor. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think last highway was the last, um, the last movie that he was in, um, yeah. him and, uh, Richard Pryor. I think this was his last right. one as well. Um, yeah. which I always surprised every time I watch this movie, I haven't watched it in a while. Um, but I, you know, after watching it again for this podcast, uh, I forgot he's in it. And when he shows up, it's, yeah. I don't know, I love Richard Pryor. It's a joy to see, but it, it's so, it's so him still. And it's just funny. Jack Nance is in that scene with him too. And I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. how much, I don't know how long, I, I, I don't know how much acting Jack Nance did after Lost Highway. I know he sort of turned up in everything that uh, David Lynch did while he was around. I don't, I don't remember exactly when, when he died. Um, I, but I, I had forgotten know. that he was in it. But there's a there's a huge cast of characters in this film. I mean, we've got uh, obviously our stars: Bill Pullman, Patricia Arquette, um, Balthazar Getty, um, Robert Blake, Richard Pryor, Michael. Uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Massey or Massey? I'm not sure. I don't uh, know. Fun boy from the Crow. <laughs> huh. um, and uh, I mean, you've got cameos by Marilyn Manson. Um, uh, Henry Rollins. I mean, there's all kinds of people in this movie. It's crazy. And it's just, it, it's, it's one of those off the wall, crazy movies that I'm just intrigued by. I still, to this day, I don't get it. I watched it again last night. Uh, Shawnee comes in halfway through the movie after he's done his prison scene transformation. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to figure it out and ask me yep. questions. Like it's a normal movie. Right. And she'll ask me something. I'm like, no, that's really hard to explain. <laughs> like, I mean, it would probably take me like 20 minutes to explain that. I just right. go ahead and enjoy this portion of it. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're not going to try to synopsize it to, to set up this discussion. We, we are. Yeah. And I, I can actually, every, every episode that we've done, I have skipped over Carly's <laughs> synopsis and just totally forgot about it. I'm, I'm still trying to get oh, into right. it. Really understandable. It's never that great. <laughs> No, I want to hear it. I want to. I want to hear Carly's synopsis. Let's go. Okay, so we got this new thing here where Carly gets dramatic no pressure. for her synopsis. <laughs> here it is, folks. Carly's in a nutshell. 
<laughs> I'm already laughing. Synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for Carly's super famous in a nutshell synopsis. I tried really hard with this as well. Okay, so. <clears throat> the life of a tortured saxophonist accused of his wife's murder inexplicably merges with that of a young mechanic set on an equally sinister path as their stories intersect in the most abstract fashion ever committed to mainstream cinema. (laughs) (laughs) It's not inaccurate. I'll buy it. (laughs) It works. It was a little one. I feel like we're left... Worst honeymoon ever, kind of standard. Oh yeah, her last one, like her synopsis was worst honeymoon ever. That was like it her wasn't entire synopsis. Accurate. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to know, that was the touch of evil. <laughs> right. <laughs> not not inaccurate. That's good. I think you left off the sort of end of the movie where it all comes around. You know. Well, and, I, and starts to make sense and also not make any sense. Well, I don't want to do spoiler alert without spoiler alert, do I? Bloody hell. <laughs> I mean, David Lynch doesn't really talk about uh, this film. And when he does, he can't really explain it. He just kind of says, yeah, I don't, I don't really remember how, how all of that came about. <laughs> um, and he won't, and he won't, and he, and he won't try to explain, he won't, you know, of course, he would never synopsize it, and he and he's not going to try to break down the plot, and he doesn't really answer questions in a straightforward way about anything. Mm-hmm. But the things that I think he's he's said um, about the origin, I think there's like three different things he's talked about as kind of the origin of the project, and one of them was that he read uh, a book called Night People, a novel by Barry Gifford, who ended up co-writing mm-hmm. the screenplay with him. Yes. Um, I, I actually, you know, because we were doing this, I ordered the novel, that novel, which I haven't read. So I can't tell you anything about that. But I think Lynch said basically there was like one line of dialogue in that novel that he really liked. And he just took like, it wasn't like he was going to adapt the novel. He just liked this one line and it kind of got his imagination going. And then he and Barry Gifford got together and just sort of riffed. They just started saying, oh, I, I, what about this? And initially they hated each other's ideas and they just kept talking until, um, they were having uh, a, a dialogue um, mm-hmm. as practice as, as that dialogue might've been. So that was the starting point. And then I think he's also said that David Lynch has said that he had, that somebody came to his house uh, or, you know, buzzed the front door of his house and said, uh, Dick Laurent is dead or that's mm-hmm. what he heard. Wow. So that actually happened to him. And David Lynch lives in in the Hollywood Hills in a house that doesn't. It had just like the house in the in the film. It has these really small windows on the front, so you can't go to the window and look out and see who's standing in front of your house. So mm-hmm. by the time you get out there, you know there's nobody there, and uh, he didn't really know what you know if he'd heard it right or if anybody was there. What you know he, he couldn't explain it. And, and actually, they ended up shooting. The house that's in the film um, is like down. I think it's right down the street from David Lynch's actual house, and he bought he bought that house for the movie so that they could uh, change the front of the house so that there were no windows. You know, he didn't want to use his own house in the in the movie, but he he wanted 
he wanted that same effect of, uh, because the house in the film, uh, you know, it's the same thing. It's got those, those really thin, tall, uh, windows. Yeah. I, I heard that. And, um, they said that he also shot inside the house and they built walls in there and whatnot. And I think that kind of lends itself to what, when I was watching it this last time, it, it looks like a set and I'm assuming that's why, because they actually built walls for the movie and stuff inside. Um, because yeah. to me it, it looks very sparse and like a set, like a cheaply made set, but it, I guess it, it actually, from what I read is actually they shot inside the house. Well, he also, I think, you know, it's the, it's the use of, um, like the blacks in lost highway are, are super black. I mean, if somebody goes mm-hmm. down a hallway, they completely disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that usually like film filmmakers can't get away with. Like it won't pass quality control if, right. if you, dip, yeah. if you dip the blacks that low, but that was exactly what he wanted. And so I think it, it, it gives you this kind of like instinctive feeling that there's something false about it, you know, or, or unreal about it. And, and you can interpret that I suppose in two ways by saying, well, it must be a set because they, they're shooting this in such a way that we can't see very far. So they must be trying to kind of trick, trick the audience into believing there's something there when there's really nothing there. But it also has that kind of uncanny uh, quality where you're really like you watch that movie and you're really kind of straining to see into the darkness, but it's total darkness. And that has, you know, that has an effect on you as a viewer. It's really creepy. Absolutely. And you know, we recently just covered, um, the movie Brick uh, by Ryan uh, Johnson. Um, and there's a particular scene in here that is very similar to that sort of aspect of Lost Highway, where we see George, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character walk down stairs uh, in uh, the Penn's house, which is going down to the basement. And it's so dark that they cross-faded the pen walking up the stairs at the same time. And it's such an eerie, like, sort of, ghostly otherworldly effect it, it it reminded me a lot because i just watched both of them or i just watched brick that when i watched lost highways it, it had a lot of similarity or quality of a feel to to this movie as well because the blacks in this movie and i think that was be, probably from him wanting to initially want to shoot it in black and white um yeah but having done it in color i think he did a phenomenal job of getting all those sorts of uh shades of darkness in there even with the wardrobe and and everything else about it 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 all meshes very well together and it's very eerie um even when they're out in the middle of nowhere like in the desert uh you know with those sort of alien spotlightish you know kind of look that you're talking right. about or the headlights of the car or whatever it might be um he did you know they did a fantastic job with 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 that sort of style, whatever that style might be. I guess people would consider it noir, but it's still, it's very different, you know? Yeah. Well, I think he's very selective when he uses red in, in the film. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not like a color palette that he's trying to, um, get throughout the film, but when he uses it, it's really striking. And, and probably because you're, 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 um, seeing a lot of things in those sort of uh, shades of gray, you know, black and white tones. Um, mm-hmm. And so it really stands out. Uh, the, the scene um, uh, toward the end where it's, it's, uh, so it's Fred again, so it's Bill Pullman opening the door and he sees uh, this sort of like blown out demonic looking Patricia Arquette, you know, in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's, she's like taunting him and saying, do you want to know why? And, and the, 
just the quality of that. I mean, the, 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 the use of just like black and red as the two dominant colors. Uh, it's so surreal and so creepy. And you really feel like, all right, he just opened a door into hell. <laughs> and, 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 and that could be so gimmicky. And I feel like most filmmakers can't, can't pull that off. It would have been over the top or it would have been too abstract or it would have been almost funny, but he does such an amazing job of controlling the tone of the film that, that really, you know, when that happens, um, you know, the, at least the effect that it has on me as a, as a viewer is like being in, being in a nightmare, you know, as, as it's not, it's not over the top. It's not something that it, it, it has, it has, it is a gut punch for me anyway. I agree with that. I think he's so successful at it because if you start out watching this film, it, it, it might be a little off kilter, a little strange just in the, the quietness of it all. Yeah. But oh, yeah. it still plays pretty straight for a while. But those little nuances that he creates, whether it's the crazy, you know, saxophone solo or just the quietness of Bill Pullman's character or their odd, strange sex scene or whatever it might be. He, I feel like he's almost foreshadowing that that stranger stuff um, like him opening the door to Patricia Arquette's character and seeing that. And that's what makes it work so well is why other filmmakers can't really pull it off because they're, they're thinking about foreshadowing story, but not necessarily style, which is also important. Um, particularly with, if you're going to do something as strange and weird as that. And I think Sam Raimi is another uh, director that can kind of pull off strangeness because he's able to foreshadow that, um, as where other filmmakers can't, cause he does crazy wacky stuff. But yeah. it somehow works within his his movies as well. Um, and But David Lynch is definitely a master at doing that. Kind of, I think he does that in most of his films, uh, whether it's Twin Peaks or, you know, Blue Velvet, whatever it is. You're right about the pacing. I mean, I, I don't think I don't I can't think of anybody else who 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 can do that slow, deliberate pace and have that kind of control over the minutia mm. of, of the story, which is really like I mean, um so Shawnee didn't watch the, the beginning of no, the movie, huh? right? She she came in about right when uh, uh, Balthazar Getty's uh, character like comes into play. Yeah. yeah, to me that's Act Two. Right. right. Yeah. I mean that you're in Act Two. Like, to me, there's like a hard you know there's a hard turn there because you're you go into a completely different story and tonally it's a little bit different at least initially mm -hmm. and then you kind of come back around to that that ominous tone you know more and more and more as the as sort of the second act into the third act goes, but that first act, um, everything about it is just so deliberate and, and, and builds so much mystery. And a lot of it is, um, it's, it's not giving you, um, really any story to, to hold, to grasp onto. So you're constantly reaching for the story. And because it's got that noir style, you're going, okay, the, the wife is not saying much. She's really hot. Is she cheating on him and he's aware of it? Does he not mm -hmm. know yet? Is it, you know, I mean, you're trying to figure it out. So he's making you do all this work, but then he's also creating a sense of dread in, in this, in these, these like subliminal way. I mean, I, the, so the first time that I watched it, um, with my wife, uh, well, she didn't watch, she watched the first act and then, and it's, it sort of got to the point where he goes down, where Fred goes down that, that darkened hall and there's nothing going on. And you're, you're waiting. Like you, you have this sense that something horrible is going to happen. And, and, 
at the time watching it then, um, I had this really good sound system that I don't have anymore. I miss it, but you know, it had this, it had this huge like subwoofer on, on the floor and we had the sound cranked all the way up, which is how you're supposed to, you know, watch a David Lynch movie because he's, he's such a sound guy. And the, there was nothing going on except on like the, that bass, you know, bass track. And you could hear when we were watching it in that scene, you could hear the subwoofer, like, like pulsing out air. <laughs> but you could, but it, it wasn't sound or it was like sub audible sound. And then I, and so I did some research at some point was like, yeah, he did that intentionally that there's actually something sub audible going on there. So if you have a good sound system, you know, it, it, it has this effect where you can't hear anything, but the hair stands up on your arm and you don't know why. Uh-huh, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the level on which he's, he's working, um, to just use every, every kind of trick, you know, in his bag to, uh, uh, you know, to get under your skin and that, and that it is, you know, it's not just storytelling. I mean, what he withholds in terms of story is, is where a lot of the power is and forcing you to make connections and, and forcing you to kind of grasp for, um, grasp for a, for a story. You know, you, you, you have to be a participant and people who can't participate, uh, or don't want to participate, uh, you know, they hate David Lynch movies. It's just frustrating. Right. Yeah, it's true. And, and that is, uh, that, that is definitely part of his genius, uh, because there's very few movies where you could get away with not telling the audience basically anything like, and, and exactly what you're talking about where you, the audience has to work. That's exactly what I did last night when I was watching this, I'm trying to figure out these two people's relationship and, and what's going on between them. Cause obvi- I mean, to me, it's obvious there's some kind of frustration there, whatever it might be. Um, there, I mean, he makes a point of having this, uh, the, these quiet moment between these people. And then you have this sort of awkward sex scene between them. And then you have, you know, the, him sort of going out, uh, I guess it happened before the sex scene, but him going out and doing his, uh, his music act, which is kind of creepy on its own in some way, but there's, there's so much weight to all of these scenes without there really being any story there that you do have to try to piece things together that aren't there. (laughs) It's very weird, (laughs) but it it does work ultimately. And I think, you know, speaking of the, the style and the lighting and all of that and, and how that stuff is related to like noir films, it does put, it plants that little seed into your head about, okay, this is not just a dark film, but it's, this is a dark story. There's something bad going on. We just don't know yet even though nothing really happens between these people besides the videotape, you know, which is just, I mean, doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Well, it's true. There's not any overt violence until, uh, Mr. Eddie, you know, which is, which is you're into the second act by the time he shows up, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and like beats the tailgater. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's no, but, it's, but you're, but you're, you're sort of waiting for it up until that point. You're sort of waiting for something horrible to happen, uh, until, yeah. until he comes into the movie and like, Oh, okay. This, this guy feels like he belongs in this movie. Right. Yeah. Even like the death scene of, uh, um, what, what's the name? Fred, what's, uh, um, Bill Pullman, Fred, right. Uh, even when, uh, he supposedly has killed his wife or whatnot, like there's nothing that, that has led to that. There's nothing that explains it. It just sort of is. And he goes to jail. Um, right. I mean, there wasn't even any violence in that. Uh, and we already had a murder and 
So yeah, I think people are anticipating something coming on because it really, even with the murder, it hasn't really happened yet. Um, and I personally thought it was going to start happening in the jail. I mean, you got Henry Rollins there. I mean, he's going to jail, all these things. It's like, I, I thought, especially the first time I saw it, this was going to end up being like the second half of the movie was going to be like this prison movie. Right. But then of course we get this otherworldly transformation. And I remember the first time I saw this in the theater, I was just, there was nothing else I could say by what the fuck just happened. <laughs> like I had no idea. So, Hey Carla, let's take a break real quick and talk to our listeners about our sponsors. Listening to the Speakeasy Noir Cast, the show that brings you binge drinking with a side of noir, with your hosts Carly Street and Jason D. Morris. Is it an anthology film? And now we're on to the second story. <laughs> it's amazing that you brought that up because it's exactly the way I view this movie. Is I view it as an anthology film because there are two, even though it has this sort of connected wraparound third act. Uh, those two stories are very, very different, but we have this Robert Blake characters um, sort of keeping the cohesiveness or at least like a connection between it, uh, even though story-wise within these two individuals, there's no real connection other than Patricia Arquette playing dual doppelganger roles. Or I mean, I, I don't know. It's, so I look at them as, as completely different stories until that wraparound comes around, which to me is its own little story. Um, once bill pullman's character comes back it's like it feels like that's sort of its own thing on its own because it's and to me it's almost like a prequel as well um to the first half of the story uh you know even though it's sort of like it's not it's a prequel sort of because he goes to his own house and tells him the guy is dead which we see in the beginning but at the same time it's like doesn't make sense because the same cops are there and they chase him down and it's just, it's so off the wall, <laughs> just so off the wall. What's crazy about this thing that watching the movie now, I mean, the Robert Blake, so his character is, is really the thing that ties the, the two stories together. You know, his, his, um, presence as this mystery man, uh, right. it's sort of what ties those things together. And, you know, this is a guy who in real life, you know, went on trial for murdering his wife. Um, you know, that's what the story is about. Uh, you know, did, did Fred, uh, murder his wife and, and David Lynch has said that, um, when he was writing the script, he was, he was really heavily influenced by the OJ Simpson trial. So, you know, he was another real life, you know, guy who went on trial for murdering his wife. Um, my theory is that David Lynch, um, you know, and, and Barry Gifford, I don't know how much, you know, what, what they exactly the details of their collaboration were, but that they sort of had that first act and they followed it to this kind of natural conclusion where the guys, um, you know, put away, uh, in jail and, um, and, and maybe didn't quite know, you know, where, where the story went from there. And then, um, you know, they're working on the script and, and the OJ Simpson trial is going on. And David Lynch has said that the thing that really struck him about the OJ Simpson trial was, you know, he, he believed like, uh, I think most people that, uh, OJ did it. And yet he's able to sit in, in trial and just completely deny it. 
And so, you know, David Lynch is looking at it going, you know, how do you cope with something like that? You know, or one way of coping is to just shut down, compartmentalize that you've done this horrible thing. And, and you just, you essentially become a sociopath, you know, you just, you turn it off. It didn't happen. Total denial wasn't me. You know, we see a lot of this in, you know, in politics right now, uh, just, just total denial. Um, not me. I'm not that kind of person. I never could have done that. And, um, and that was sort of the hook. I think that he, that he hung his hat on writing lost highway was, was, you know, this, you know, in this abstract way saying this guy after killing his wife becomes a completely different person leading a completely different life, you know, just, just blocks out the first act of the story entirely. Um, you know, and it's not a clean, you know, this is not a linear narrative. So that doesn't logically explain it, but, but that sort of, you know, in an abstract way explains it. And then, you know, as the story progresses through act two and act three, um, you know, the sort of the, you know, the blood kind of seeps through the carpet. Um, you know, he just, he can't, he can't hold it down. There are all these clues and the mystery man, the Robert Blake character is what really brings it uh, you know, kind of to the surface where he becomes eventually, you know, becomes uh, Fred again. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you bring up the OJ thing because it's almost prophetic that um, Robert Blake and uh, goes on trial for murdering his wife. Cause a lot of people still think that he did it, even though he's been, you know, acquitted or whatever. I, I would have <laughs> looking back on it now, I would have thought maybe that it happened before this movie, but it didn't it happen in 2001. Um, but it's just sort of like a weird sort of connection with him having this fascination with the OJ Simpson trial and that sort of being able to disconnect with that. And then us as an audience or just people in, in general, like hearing about him potentially killing his wife. And, you know, a lot of people just thought he was very cold about it and disconnected. Um, right. And it's just, it's art imitating life, life imitating art kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you, you can't watch the movie now without, Mm-mm. without having that in the back of your mind. Yeah. That, that because it, the movie then becomes, you know, it, it becomes almost, it's like, uh, you know, uh, sort of meta fictional in a way. Right. And I think, I think if lost highway were a straightforward narrative, you know, about a guy who kills his wife, um, you know, and then, and then somebody from the film, you know, goes out into the world and, and is accused of something like that. Um, that would be one thing you'd be like, Oh, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of weird. But, you know, that, that, uh, that there's that connection, but I don't, I don't think, I think because Lost Highway is so abstract, it's even creepier because I mean, what is this character that, that Robert Blake is playing? You know, what, what is, I mean, so I think, I think I also remember David Lynch at one point saying that, you know, he cast Robert Blake, but let Robert Blake control his look. So Robert Blake yeah. who shows up in this sort of like black monk's robe, you know, with a shaved head and like, you know, pancake batter on his face or whatever it is, you know? And, and so, you know, I mean, what, like, what was he, you know, is he, he he's like somewhere between like, uh, like, uh, the death in, in the seventh seal and like uncle Fester from the Adams family. <laughs> <laughs> like what, what is, what is, you know, and what is he supposed to represent? And there's no, you know, I mean, it's another one of these things that like the movie's creepy because there's no easy answer to that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, Oh, he's death or he's, 
the dark side of Fred or whatever, you know, I mean, there's no, there's not a like coherent, you feel like there's not a coherent worldview behind this of what's real and what's not real and what's logical and what's not logical. So it just, it keeps you off balance all the time. And it's the being off balance that really, you know, I, I mean, I felt watching just watching this again recently, uh, you know, it was the same way as, um, I felt watching Eraserhead for the first time or watching the new mm. season of, of Twin Peaks where you're just going, I can't figure this out, <laughs> but, but the technique and the subtle effect that it's having on me on like a, you know, on like a biological level right. is really powerful. And, you know, when people try to emulate that, it's just, it just seems like being weird for weird sake. And I think sometimes actually David Lynch slips into just weird for weird sake. And I don't, I don't love everything he's done, but, um, but boy, when he's on his game and I think he was really on his game with lost highway, it just, you know, I, I just sit there and, and marvel that anybody can, you know, reach through the screen and grab you like that without, a coherent linear narrative. I'm a story guy. So that, that blows my mind. I agree with that. I think that when he is on his game, it's, it's amazing. Going back to Robert Blake, Carly, what do you think, what do you think his character represents? Cause I have my own ideas, but I feel a bit daft. Cause I'm not really the biggest fan of David Lynch, to be honest with you. I didn't think you would be. <laughs> Listen to you guys talk really in depth about it. And I just feel a bit silly, but um, I really like. Is this going to be like the episode where 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 Jason said he didn't like Bogart, and, and now, <laughs> now it's flipped. like you say I don't like, like David Lynch, and he's going to just. <laughs> I feel like Might there's, be. there's some kind of curse that is like traveling from San Francisco right now over the Atlantic towards me because <laughs> I genuinely uh, I I feel I feel bad juju Don't send me juju. <laughs> I feel bad. <laughs> I've never, I've never really been that big of a David Lynch fan, but I actually, surprisingly, quite like Lost Highway. I can't figure it out for the life. You liked of it? I've no freaking idea yeah. what the hell is going on. But I, I enjoy that. I can't figure it out. If that, if that seems well, I'm pretty sure it's the sort of like disconnected leading man thing that seems like your thing. Like Bill Pullman is at top you of his game, I think, in this Bill movie. Pullman. I'm not gonna lie, you had seen yeah. Bill. Was, but I've watched this over the course of 10 years because I'm a big Bill Pullman fan and I still 10 years later cannot figure out anything about it. There's literally one line hooked in this movie and I, I'm probably quoting it wrong, but it's, it's something along the lines of where he says, I like to remember things my own way, not the way that they happen. Yeah. And that is the whole essence of the film being crazy to me. And that that's what keeps me coming back to it. That's why I like it. That's why... I can get on board with this one, even though it is mad and it's crazy and it's out there and I don't know what's going on, but I, I want to, every time I watch it, I want to figure it out. Well, I mean, that, that particular like line that you you're quoting there is, is really my entire theory on this movie. Like I try not to have a theory on the movie, but I can't help it. Like you watch it and you try to put it together. And for me, that particular line is extremely important to this entire film because I feel like once he goes to jail, that his it's his psyche that snaps. It doesn't actually physically turn into somebody else. I think everything else from that point on is just in his head. Um, and, and when we get to like the third act, we're just basically seeing the beginning of the film before anything else kind of happened. Um, 
And that's kind of the way that I took it, or at least I like to think of it, uh, because that, because of that particular line, it's like, it's, he likes to remember things the way that he wants to remember them, not necessarily how they were. Yeah. But then I feel like it's he manipulating the entire story because he's remembering how he wants to. So is that even accurate? Well, I, I think that's why David Lynch doesn't, he, he wants people to, um, you know, bring, bring kind of whatever personal interpretations or whatever, you know, he wants them to engage with it. And I think that's why he doesn't talk about most of his movies. Um, and I remember some interview where he, he talked about how, uh, he, how he loves mystery and, you know, mystery done, done right, um, is a magnet, you know, it pulls, it, it pulls you in. And, and if you are a certain type of personality, you get in, you get drawn into a mystery and, and the mystery becomes an obsession, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, and I'm obsessive. So, I mean, I watched lost highway and I'm going, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways I can interpret this or this makes me, I mean, I could probably sit and talk about lost highway and not talk about the plot or the characters at all, but just sort of tell stories, you know, like from my life or secondhand stories or whatever that are, that are things that lost highway makes me think of, mm-hmm. you know, about, about memory and trauma and just different, you know, different, different things. I mean, I, you know, it's, I, I think it's the kind of story that, that, that taps into, you know, the viewer's subconscious on that level or con- you know, that's, those are conscious thoughts. I'm making conscious associations. And then by the end of the movie, if you're an obsessive type, you have to do something with that. I mean, I, I feel every time I saw a David Lynch movie for the first time with a few exceptions, I then go away and I'm like, I have to write about that or I have to go read about that. You know, I have to go find a book of David Lynch interviews and figure out, you know, w- what, what he has said. And, and I'm, I'm glad that he doesn't you know, offer, yeah. offer the answers. Uh, I mean, sometimes yeah. he comes close to saying, here's what I was thinking. And you can extrapolate from that. Um, but that's the reason to go back and keep watching the movie. You know, you never. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. It resonates with you to the point that you get obsessive and you think, no, I've got to figure this out. I, I need something. And if you don't get it, you go back to the film. And then if you don't get it again, you'd get trapped in that cycle of, I need something. I need to figure this out. I need to get a little ounce of something to piece it together. Right. What do you, what do you guys think? What, if, what if, what if Lynch purposely didn't have any sort of narrative in mind? What if he purposely has no messing with our brain? Yeah, exactly. What if he just simply, it's an experiment in what do you think? You know what I mean? Darren Brown and he's controlling the world. (laughs) (laughs) That damn Darren Brown. I mean, but this is the question is like, what, you know, how do you define narrative because I don't think that he ever, well, I don't know if I want to say ever. Um, most of the time, I don't think he has a linear narrative. You know, we, we think, I mean, it's more like a, it's like, you know, European, like Italian horror films of a certain vintage, you know, that they're, or, or even American horror films kind of in the eighties, like after Wes Craven made Nightmare on Elm Street, you've got this sort of rubber reality thing going on in a lot of, a lot of horror movies. I mean, they're, they're, they're abstract and the associations they're, they're kind of built on associations. We're going to come back to that phrase. We're going to come back to that image, but there's not going to be a clean story connection between the two things. And so it's, so it's dreamlike, you know, we're going to play on your 
subconscious. I mean, I think he does that probably better than anybody else. Um, and yeah, I think do you think you think he does it on purpose without actually having sort of some sort of narrative in mind, particularly with this film, because I find there's far more narrative in something like blue velvet or, you know, whatever. But, um, with, with this particular one, it almost, it almost, to me, it just has that sort of thing about it where it just feels like he's kind of messing with the viewer (laughs) and and being his first film for a while. You know, it just, it, it just feels that way. Like it's, it's, I mean, like I said, like an experiment in viewership, like what, what do people think? What are they going to derive from this mess? Well, I think you're making distinctions maybe that he doesn't, I think his brain actually probably wait after years of transcendental meditation, his brain probably just works in a different way. Um, (laughs) You know, because, because somebody, I remember somebody like there was a behind the scenes featurette for the new Twin Peaks. And I think the new season of Twin Peaks is as abstract as anything he's ever done, but I also think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember somebody asking about him about, there's some really dark, like the kid getting run over by the car. Yeah. It's just, I mean, there's some really, really heavy, dark stuff in there. And I remember somebody asking about that, you know, like where, where does all this, you know, dark stuff come from? And, and does, does, putting it on film help you to kind of exercise your, your demons and all. You know, and I remember them asking him this on camera and he just kind of went, there's nothing dark in my stuff. You know, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you know, I, I think, I think it's just, it's part, I think in his brain, it's part of a whole, you know, he doesn't, I don't think like, like the way you framed that question of, do you think he's doing this on purpose to mess with us? I actually don't mm-hmm. think he's doing, I think this is just how David Lynch tells a story. You know, mm-hmm. he's a nonlinear thing. I mean, I had a little bit of this, actually, this is kind of funny that when, when I was doing, when I was working on the To Hell You Ride comic with Lance, uh-huh. Lance is kind of a nonlinear thinker. Um, and yes. he, yes. you know, and so, so like when we got the offer to do that comic and I sat down with Lance and I said, you know, cause he, he, he said he had written the whole story out as a screenplay in the eighties, but he didn't have a screenplay anymore. And so he was going off of memory completely off of memory. And I'm like, all right. So I went over there, you know, with my recorder and we just sat down one day and I said, all right, tell me the story. And the, and the opening was really, really vivid. It's, it's still like the opening of that comic is very abstract, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but he knew the beats and then, and then he kind of, the rest of the story, it was like, he knew bits and pieces and he was clearly, as he was telling, he was making connections that I couldn't follow. Mm, you know, okay. and it was, yeah. and it was like his, his way of telling a story is kind of, it's more impressionistic maybe is a, is a good word. But I remember when, you know, I had to write out something and, and, and give it to our editor at Dark Horse Comics. And I remember having this phone conversation with him. It was just like a one-on-one me and him without Lance. And he's like, you know, can you, can you rein this in? <laughs> <laughs> you know, to being a story, you know, that, that we can follow. And we, and I remember we had, w- what I jumped to was I said, well, all right, let's, let's go this direction. Do you like David Lynch movies? And we had this long conversation about David Lynch movies and, and, you know, what works about them and how there's, there's this really delicate balance between giving people just enough material or just enough connections or just enough of a coherent um, narrative that they can sort of fill in the gaps for themselves and leave the story feeling kind of satisfied. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I think we can get there. It's not ever going to be a like, you know, one scene to the next point by point story. It's just not, that's not the story Lance wants to tell. And, you know, there's no reason I'm, I'm not going to try to turn it into something that it's not, uh, because mm-hmm. I really liked this sort of abstractness of it. Um, now whether or not we succeeded, you know, or whether or not I succeeded in, in, you know, reigning that in, I don't, that's debatable. That's highly debatable. Um, but I, you know, and, and I don't think that, that David Lynch always succeeds. So I remember like having that conversation with the editor and we talked about, you know, Inland Empire. I mean, I think Inland Empire goes off the rails. Uh-huh. And I was not looking forward to the new season of Twin Peaks because I thought, boy, the, the more canvas he's given, the more opportunity there is to go off the rails. But, you know, I think, I think, the, new, I think the new season of Twin Peaks completely worked for me. There were only like one or two little, little like story lines that didn't work for me. And I, 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 that, that was amazing because it is a huge canvas. But I, think, but I think he was, I think if you know David Lynch's work, there was so much stuff in it that was, that was providing callbacks to his earlier work and to earlier, you know, the characters from the, you know, two full season of Twin Peaks are there. These are actors that you know who've worked mm-hmm. with David Lynch for years and years and years. So there's like a mythology that it, that it's kind of riffing on. And I think without that, it would be harder. I think it would still be brilliant, but I think it would be harder to, uh, come away from feeling satisfied, <laughs> at least on, yeah, on well, a- I think people have those sort of like connections to the previous seasons and yeah. even the movie, maybe to where right. if they tried to do right. something new, even if it's David Lynch, it, it still wouldn't have come over very well. I think people were hoping and expecting to have those connections. And, and yeah, it, it did work really well. And yeah, Inland Empire did go off the rails. <laughs> so guys, we're hitting our hour mark here. I think we can, uh, we need to go through and we need to give this movie a rating because that's what we do. And, and Joe, um, I don't know if how much of our show you've listened to, but we do gen bottles instead of stars for movies because we're alcoholics and, um, Harley loves gen. Don't tell me that. <laughs> yeah. We are functioning members of society who use this as a rating. We're, we are. In, in 2020, everybody's an alcoholic. Everybody's <laughs> caught up with me in street. So it's fine. Yeah. yeah it, just, it just took us to 2020 to do it. <laughs> Um, so Carly, since you've been the quietest, quietest one today, I want to hear your full, uh, your full on impression of this film and your rating. And I want to see where you stand with this. Um, so you, you take us into this first. Okay. Okay. Well, I've been enjoying listening to you guys dissect it in a way that I could never do. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to surprise you with my rating to be fair. I'm going to give you the rating first. I don't think so. I'm going to give you the rating first. And then tell me, tell me, no, no, tell me your opinion first. I want to hear your yeah, opinion first because gonna, then I think your rate, now your rating's going to taint it for me. <laughs> Again, with the negativity, Chris, why are you so negative? Of uh, be careful. I'm going to put on some more dramatic piano. Okay, go on then. Hit me, princess. <laughs> Do it however you want. Do it however you want. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. Oh, interesting. I did not expect that from you. You're right. Do you think I'd be higher or lower? Lower, much lower. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I felt bad giving it seven out of 10. Um, my. You should. Sure reason for giving it a seven out of 10. Top. My, you, you told me to drown myself in the toilet. Okay. My pure reason <laughs> for giving it a seven out of 10 is 
I'm actually a very big fan of Jennifer Lynch as opposed to David Lynch. Mm. And I interesting. One of uh, the films that I absolutely love is Surveillance again with Bill Pullman, and I yeah. would give that film a nine out of ten. And I probably because I yeah, I can follow it more. I understand it more. I can kind of yeah because this is a constant mystery to me. And to be fair, it probably deserves a ten out of ten for being a constant mystery in my brain. But it also infuriates me because there's so many ways, there's so many ways that I can draw conclusions. And because I can't box one off, it continuously infuriates me. So it's kind of a bit of a love-hate with this film. I love that I can't figure it out, but I also hate that I can't figure it out. Yeah, that's an emotional reaction. I buy it. That's good. Yeah. yeah, very emotional. David Lynch would be happy, I think. <laughs> I think David Lynch would be happy with that. I hope so. We should email him and tell him and see what he says. I think he, he'd be at his house going, God damn Brits. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody British woman. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be like, sorry, filthy Brit. <laughs> <laughs> It, it can continue to bamboozles me. So I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. This film messes with my brain. It messes with my, my rating and my gin consumption. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it surprising that um, Jennifer Lynch did a lot of television directing. Like she did some uh, sort of inconsequential sort of TV, like psych and warehouse 13 uh, stuff like that. I don't know. I always find that interesting. But um, all right, Carly. I expected I expected it to be a, a much worse than that. So it's uh, you, you made it respectful. I guess You're I can't welcome. say much about it. Yeah. And our guest today, Joe. Actually, we'll just let Joe go last because because uh, he'll always have something good to say. Um, oh, so you can be rubbish and then Joe will just cover you. Okay, I see what you're doing. <laughs> I see what you say, Morris. Uh, this is my favorite David Lynch movie. I love this movie. I don't know why, though, and I can't express it articulately other than I love the style. I love the feel uh, of this movie. I think it's full of shitty people, which isn't normally my thing. Um, but there's just, there's just some unspoken thing to me in my brain that... I connect to with this movie and I don't know if it's the time period that it came out. I don't know if that it just, uh, you know, it had part of that marketing sense. Cause you know, like Nine Inch Nails was huge at the time. Marilyn Manson was huge at the time, bringing that stuff together for the soundtrack. I was huge into soundtracks at the time, uh, or just the darkness of it, the noir feeling of it. I, I didn't know much about noir at the time. Um, not till several years later. Um, so, and it's got one of my favorite film opening credit sequence of just going down this highway with these uh, titles just shooting towards the screen. It's just, I loved it. Um, the entire soundtrack, I think, is amazing. Um, even like the excellent choices with the Bowie stuff and just everything in it is just great. Um, but I can't really tell you what the fuck it's about. I can't tell you what he was trying to say with it. Um, I, you know, other than just like my own personal feelings. And I got a feeling that that's whether it was intentional or not, that that's just sort of the way it's supposed to be. And I guess some movies are just are. Um, and I, I understand it's like probably too abstract for most people. 
but I think this is Lynch at his best. I think this is Bill Pullman at his best Mm -hmm. and the rest of the cast is just so just, just great uh, ensemble. Even if they're only in like a scene or something, it's just interesting just to see somebody like pop up like Richard Pryor or whoever it might be. Um, It was just, just great choices all around. Um, But just uh, a goddamn weird movie. You know, it's just so weird. <laughs> I just don't know how else to. If somebody asked me to try to, uh, if somebody said like, "Yo, should I watch Lost Highway?" I would say absolutely yes. But if they asked me what it's about, I, I don't fucking know. <laughs> you just got to watch it for yourself. <laughs> I'd be I'd be careful about who you recommend it to. <laughs> this is not a movie for everybody. It is not. But I mean, I'm that way though because I feel like if you know, and I know this is a shitty like perspective, but I feel like if I like something. I want other people to like it, even if they don't, you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't try to force that on them, but I do. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, it's like Carly and Bogart, you know, uh, she'll try to make you love Bogart. <laughs> I will. Manipulation, bribery, any way, shape or form. <laughs> Worst of all, I'll make you a smoothie. You're going to fucking watch the films then. <laughs> Oh yeah, she's on a smoothie kick now, so she's trying to force those on people. You need to create a Bogart smoothie, and maybe people will drink it. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm I'm undecided whether I'd give this a nine or a ten. I want to give it a ten, but then I see like certain aspects to it of it being sort of uh, I wouldn't necessarily say a flawed narrative, but like one that general public can't grasp onto or or even attempt to understand or want to. So commercial wise, I guess there's that sort of part of me that bleeds in, I guess, from being a filmmaker saying that this is way too weird for most people. So how could it possibly be a 10? But to me personally, I would give this 10, 10 gens out of 10. So there you have it. Nice. Joe, I'm interested because I, I have, I, I have this feeling that Joe's going to be a 10, but maybe he might surprise me and like be a two or something. <laughs> uh, just, just for like a twist ending, like. <laughs> the, the twilight zone ending where i where i pull the rug out um yeah it's like i love well, this movie but all right I hate it. it gets a zero two, two two caveats number one i hate gin um <laughs> so do i <laughs> if gin is the only uh type of alcohol that's ever made me really sick so oh yeah uh, so i'm not a fan of gin um i'm also i also have to say that that uh, probably the, the, the thing that, um, like the, the Ramstein cues, uh, I'm not a fan yeah. of Ramstein. I could have done without, without that, but, but really other than that, I mean, those are my, those are my caveats. Like to me, I, I don't really have any, any, any misgivings about this film mm-hmm. at all. Um, I'm, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a 10 for me. Um, nice. I'm actually surprised to hear about the Rammstein because I thought that stuff fit perfectly. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's just the vocal part of it that I'm like, no, I feel, it feels like over the top. That's like the one moment where it kind of pulls me out of the, uh-huh. the mood of the thing The you know, but actually here's an interesting story. So, so I did, um, you know, I did that, the documentary on, uh, the making of the mixtape, Yes, yes. you know, uh, analog love. And we interviewed Henry Rollins and he told this story about, about the, like the one day he was on Lost Highway, because he's really just there as like the, the prison guard. And, you know, he has, you know, one line or two lines or whatever it is. And, and uh, all he's really doing is escorting uh, Bill Pullman down those stairs. And so there's not a whole lot of, you know, 
acting involved and in, in what it, what he, you know, it's not any heavy, heavy lifting, but the, the story that he told was that on the set, David Lynch for that, for that scene was playing something that he, he thought was Ramstein or was something like Ramstein and that he had these giant speakers and David Lynch just, you know, turned it up to 11 <laughs> for the walk, for them walking down just, just as like this, you know, and he, and he said, you know, I had to go and ask him, you know, later, like, why, why did you do that? And he said, David Lynch told me that, that I wanted, I wanted a physical reaction. And he said, you know, I, I then went and watched the footage of me walking down these stairs. And he said, you know, I'm really hunched up. I'm really tense. That's not how I walk. He made me walk in a tense way. And as a viewer, you watch that and, and you, it's like this little subtle thing that you pick up in the performance of like, something's going to happen because this guy's tensed up. He looks like he's, you know, like he's, he's ready to defend himself or he's ready to attack or whatever. And, and the music being that loud was getting that physical reaction. So it's another instance of, of, you know, David Lynch using music, just using everything at his, at his disposal. Um, right. And that's amazing actually for, yeah. for it to have that kind of effect on Henry Rollins of all people. Um, I figured he'd well, be anything used to, like, that so- loud. Right. That's true. Yeah. yeah. I guess it depends on you know, being there yeah. and actually experiencing it. Well, but also, and, and also just, you know, I don't think he was given any warning. So it's like, you know, okay, you know, action. And then he could be like a shock to the system mute. kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like you still have to be in, you know, you don't, you don't want to, you know, break character. So you're, you kind of react uh, instinctively, but you're probably also going, what the fuck is he doing? You know, like what, what, am I supposed to react to that? Am I, you know, so you just tense up because you don't know what's, so it's the same thing. He's doing the same thing to an actor in that instance that he's doing to the viewer where you're watching it. You're like, what's going on? Something bad's going to happen. Why is this happening? You know, it's the same thing. I mean, he just, he's, he's messing with you. Well, Joe, um, thank you for coming on the show and discussing this movie. I couldn't think of anyone else that would have been better suited for this. Uh, I think you're, analysis and analytical mind, I think is perfect for this sort of Brilliant. sort of thing. Right up, right up your alley. It was fun. Before we get out of here, is there any, any upcoming projects you're working on that you want to plug for, for people to check out or somewhere people can find you if they want to read your stuff? Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of books floating around. The newest one is book on brainstorm, the Christopher Walken uh, movie from 1983. I did a whole study of, of, of that where I went and found all the different drafts of the script that were written over like the 10 year development period. Um, and that's, a, that's a fascinating movie to me. There's like, it sort of came away from that experience going, there's about eight good movies in brainstorm <laughs> and the finished film is maybe not such a good movie because it just is trying to do too much. And there's too many fragments of too many good movies that just couldn't all be crammed into this one movie. So I still love so it. that. that <laughs> It's, it's, I love a lot of things about it. You know, it's, it's, I love it more realizing everything that went into it. So I, right. you know, I hope that, that for people who love the movie, that the book actually makes them love it more for people who don't love the movie. Maybe they go, Oh wow, there actually are some pretty brilliant things going on here. Well, that's, uh, for me, it's going to be a must have to pick that up. Like I can imagine, like, how could you even find the material to write that? Like where, where did these yeah. scripts come from? I figured they would be lost to time. Well, I'm, I'm really good friends with Bruce Rubin, who was the one who originated that idea. I mean, he wrote the original script for that in, in 1973 um, under a completely different title. And, um, 
and, you know, didn't like he was going to produce it independently, um, for a while. And then that fell through and then it got bought by a Hollywood producer and sort of redeveloped. And then, you know, a new writer came on and turned it into a completely different type of movie. And then another writer came on, turned it in. Then Doug Trumbull came on as a, as a director and he wanted to emphasize different parts of the story than what were emphasized in the, in the, well, the multiple drafts by two writers. And so then he brought in a new writer, but sort of only took some of the things that the new writer brought. I mean, it just went through this crazy Hollywood development process that, and then this, you know, a lot of movies go through this and they, uh, just, you know, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I, 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 Bruce had, um, basically had a, had a closet in his house where he'd kept every, you know, draft of every movie he ever wrote. Oh, wow. and, um, and he was like, you know, have at it. <laughs> so, um, so I went through all his drafts of, of, um, what was called the George Dunlap tape, which was his original, uh, brainstorm story. And then, and then I reached out to the other writers, um, who were credited on the film and got their drafts. And then, uh, went to the Academy library in Beverly Hills and they had some more drafts, uh, interviewed all the writers interviewed, uh, Doug Trumbull, who had also sort of done a draft at one point. Um, and, uh, when there was like a, there was a completely lost draft that somebody, Robert, uh, Robert, yeah, Robert Getchell, um, came in and wrote a draft because he was, he was really hot. he had just done, um, was it Alice doesn't live here anymore? I think, hmm. uh, is that right? I can't remember now, but he had, he, he was, it was, he was really hot as a screenwriter as doing sort of dramatic films. And, uh, so he was hired to come in and do a page one rewrite that got, uh, eventually scrapped. But I found that draft in special collections at Harvard university and read oh, that wow. one. Wow! And so, I mean, I really went through, you know, step by step by step by step. And even though like the Getchell draft got completely discarded, there's still little bits in the finished film where you're kind of like, yeah, that's that. I think that it's not a quote from Getchell's draft, but you can see how he influenced the project. So the whole, the whole book I wrote was about this, this kind of creative evolution of an idea, all the mutations that it had to go through to end up on the screen. And when you know all of those mutations uh, you watch the film, and like I said, you you're wa- you can see kind of eight different films in one. <laughs> you can see all these, all these little bits and bobs of ideas that had had just had they been pursued uh, on their own independently would have been, you know, like this would you know version one would have been a really interesting movie, and version two would have been a really interesting movie, and and you know, but they're but they're almost different genres. Um, wow. So there's all this, all this, you know, it's, it's just, it's a huge, it's brainstorms a good title for that movie because it kind of, uh, you know, it, <laughs> it was it, a brainstorm of scripts. It's, yeah. It's, it's sort of a brain buster, you know? Um, <laughs> so that's, so that's my long winded, uh, pitch for that. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, I, th- I think that's available, um, uh, end of September. And, and what, what's the actual title of the book? Is it just brainstorm or? It's just brainstorm. Yeah, it's part of a it's part of a series called Constellations. Okay. Um, by which is uh, actually being uh, published in the states by uh, Oxford University Press and in, in the UK by Liverpool University nice. Press. Okay. Um, so that's floating around, and then the next one uh, 
will be that will be the Stephen King yeah. adapting Stephen King. So that'll be a whole. But don't get me started on that because, good God, we'll be talking for another hour. If- <laughs> <laughs> That's right. People know that it's coming, so hopefully yeah. we'll keep an yeah. eye on it. And I would suggest everybody pick up a copy of Brainstorm. Uh, I'm going to, and hopefully it 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 does hit shelves at the end of September because I want to read it before I rewatch Brainstorm because it's been a while. Um, I suggest you guys do the same thing. Joe, thank you again for coming on today. It's been amazing to talk to you, man. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, All right, guys. uh, We hope that you um, enjoy your rusty nail and uh, enjoy watching or listening to us talk about Lost Highways. Now go watch the film again and be even more confused than we are. (laughs) All right. And we will uh, see you again next week. Cool. Until then. Bye-bye. He's looking at you, kid. Thanks for joining us this week on the Speakeasy Noircast. Make sure to visit our website, resurrectionfilms.net, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our book, The Dark Side of Acting Up, and The Dark Side of Acting Up Volume 2, now available on Amazon. Or you can check out one of our films, also available on Amazon Prime. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Speakeasy Noircast.